It may look like an ordinary podcast, but this one's bigger on the inside, and it can travel anywhere in time and space. Pack your sonic screwdrivers and your jelly babies. Grab your hats, scarves, and tighten your bow ties. You're the companion now, so get ready to run with your hosts, Jason Hunt and Paul Gann. This is Talking Time Lord. and welcome back to another fantastic episode of Talking Time Lords. This is episode number 83, Testimony. I'm, as always, one of your hosts, Jason Hunt, and with me, my podcasting companion through time and space, we have Paul Gann. Brilliant! Simple, yet effective. <laughs> yes. How's it going, Paul? <laughs> Actually, I'm having rather mixed emotions at this point. Uh, yeah, I literally just got finished rewatching this story mm-hmm. and I still got the feels at this point to be perfectly honest <laughs> <laughs> well um, uh, yeah what episode are you talking about you may ask hmm. well that would be the episode <laughs> twice upon a time the Christmas special from 2017 featuring of course Peter Capaldi as the 12th doctor in his last regular episode as the 12th doctor I won't say last episode ever as the 12th doctor because who knows he could come back which is likely at the rate that they keep reusing these people but <laughs> That being said, I don't think we really have any news. Um, I don't think we'd really want to talk about any news because we have a lot of thoughts about Twice Upon a Time. Paul, why don't you really quick, before we get into the spoiler territory, give me a quick non-spoilery rundown of your thoughts <laughs> on Twice Upon a Time. Uh, this story hit me on lots of different levels. It made me giddy like a schoolgirl. <laughs> uh, it made me... Um, want to cry on multiple occasions and it filled me full of joy all at the same time. It's just one of those kind of stories where you just kind of you're on the emotional roller coaster from the beginning to the end. Yes. I don't really know how else to to describe this without spoilers to be perfectly all right. honest. Well, I'll 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 give um, it a shot. Um <laughs> uh, this is a great episode. This is a fantastic way for Peter Capaldi to end his run as the 12th Doctor. It brings together so many aspects of of what he did as the doctor and so many of the big points that we we learned about him as the doctor as well so i i thought it was fantastic it was an amazing episode david bradley was great as the first doctor um i really enjoyed it so no paul i think you're right there's not a lot i can say without getting into the spoilers (laughs) Uh, if you haven't seen it already go watch the freaking episode because it's great and you won't regret it um 
and then come back and finish listening to our podcast because you haven't seen it already. What is wrong with you? I know I, exactly. <laughs> if you haven't seen it already, first of all, what's wrong with you? Second of all, go watch it and then come back to our podcast because we can't talk about this without talking spoilers anymore. So roll River Song. <laughs> Spoilers. Okay, Paul. This thing kicks off by starting from the beginning. Yes, yes. Oh, I was so happy to see that, too. Yeah. Oh, yes. Not quite the beginning, but... I honestly did not expect it to go that way, though. I did not expect them to use the original footage. I, I expected them to recreate it all, but they didn't. They went back and reused the original footage, and I was so happy to see that. Well, first of all, I will tell everybody that the first time I saw this was at the theater. I went to the theater screenings of this, and they had two featurettes that played one beforehand and one after this, and those will probably be on the Blu-ray and DVD, so if you haven't seen them yet, don't worry, they're coming. But one of the things um, that they said, and I think the, the featurette that played afterwards is that they originally they did refilm entire scenes of the last episode of The Tenth Planet. And they were going to use that. But it flowed better and worked better to just play stuff from the original episode. They, they tried it both ways, and they liked the, uh, the stuff with the black and white episode better. Hmm. So out there, there is footage of a bunch of scenes reshot and recut from the classic series. And of course, I forget who, who it was that said it might have been Mark Gatiss, who said, yes, it was actually quite quite interesting to watch and to see and kind of, you know, be a part of, of all that. And of course, there's all those missing episodes, so it gives us a great template because, you know, they shot it in a very similar style to the 60s filming. So he's like, who knows? Maybe there's another way to reclaim lost episodes. And he sort of just grinned at the camera, and it was like, oh, darn you, why'd you have to do that and get my hopes up? <laughs> So well, personally, I would love that. I would love to see that kind of as an alternate version where you can kind of watch it both ways. I think that'd be really nice. But I'll be honest with you, I kind of didn't care as much for the depictions of the companions in that new footage. I just didn't feel like that they had the same feel to them, if you know what I mean. What, in the three seconds we got of them? You couldn't you well, couldn't get I, the same feeling as the original characters, the original actors? I'm shocked. I I think it was more <laughs> him than her, to be perfectly honest. You know, it was kind of the same weirdness all over again that you talked about in the animation uh, for the Power of the Daleks, where it just didn't feel right. It was something was just off. You know what I mean? The original actor for, for Ben, Michael Kreese, was very distinctive. Yeah. <laughs> uh, this guy didn't remind me of Ben at all. Well, I didn't get enough of him to really make up my mind about him. <laughs> he had like, you know, half a line. And that was it. <laughs> but maybe that was the reason why they chose to go with the original footage was because they noticed there was a difference. I don't know. According to the uh, featurette that they were showing, they seemed rather pleased with what they did get with the, the recreating of the episode. But they just decided that the original flowed better and worked better with the episode. Right. So that's <laughs> that. brief synopsis here that I've got says, as the doctor nears regeneration, he stumbles on his younger self, also refusing to change. He takes a captain 
a glass avatar, and a familiar face to convince the doctors the universe still needs them. <laughs> and we're not going to go through this scene by scene. We're going to kind of just talk about this thing. So, Paul, we get <laughs> Dr. 1 and Dr. 12 meeting yeah. each other, and they're both stubbornly refusing to change. <laughs> because, you know, it's 1 and 12. <laughs> what did you think of the, the interaction between these two incarnations of the Doctor? Well, I kind of... I, I, I liked the the diversity between the, the two of them. I, I thought that you got to see kind of the progression of how much the Doctor has grown over the last 2,000 years or so. And uh, the fact that he is not uh, of the same mindset when it comes to people mm-hmm. uh, as, as he was to begin with, you know. And that's something that we talked about before, you know, how when the show first started, the doctor didn't always come off as the friendliest person. He didn't always come off as, uh, someone who was willing to even give much thought to other people. And as the seasons progressed, he softened and became a a kinder person. Right. uh, To the point where you see a big change when he regenerates into the second. Right. And I think that it was kind of fitting to be perfectly honest to have this kind of story round out and end his character because it kind of gives uh, an opportunity to show him kind of grow even within the story. Yeah. It was a really good interaction between the two of them. I thought it was great. I love, I just love the, I love it when doctors meet up in general. <laughs> it's, it's always fantastic to, you know, use an overused word on our show. <laughs> Thank you. Christopher Eccleston. Yes. (laughs) I just love it when doctors interact because while they're the same character and they share similar traits, there's always the, you know, diversity of expression, the diversity of quirks and personality traits and stuff uh, that, that go in and make up each of them, which, you know, always plays funny because they all immediately jump to doing the same type of thing. However, (laughs) the first doctor is actually one of the more unique versions of the Doctor because he does things slightly differently than the way the rest of the Doctors do. He's much more methodical. He's much more of a scientist and, you know, someone who tries to stay set apart, you know, as an observer rather than jumping into the fray, uh, which is obviously what happens as soon as we get Patrick Troughton. He's, you know, sticking his nose in everyone's business because (laughs) he can. See, now that's something that I think is really cool about this story is this story kind of takes that first Doctor character and kind of pulls him a little bit out of that in this story to the point to where it can actually be used as a little bit of an explanation as to why he does things a little differently the next time around. Yeah. And I think David Bradley was just magnificent (laughs) as the first Doctor. I, I thought he was fantastic, amazing. I mean, I loved his performance in Adventure Through Time and Space, mm-hmm. the, the docudrama, and I'm really looking forward to seeing what he can do with Big Finish uh, as yes. the first Doctor. So yes. I, I, <laughs> I hope we get more of David Bradley as first Doctor on screen, maybe. Although I did like how they how they referenced the fact that he didn't look quite the same. Yeah. As soon as the twelfth uh, Doctor, you know, realizes who it is, he's like. You're mid-regeneration, are you? I mean, look at you. Your face is all over the place. <laughs> so they, they kind of poke, you know, point out, yes, yes, we know it's not William Hartnell. Give us a break. But, man, he, he looked so much like William Hartnell. I mean, it really, it didn't even matter to me, you know? No. Uh, it was, 
I mean, he looked more like William Hartnell than any other, you know, person that they could have probably picked to play in that, that role. Um, it, yeah, yeah. Especially with the wig and everything. Oh. Yeah. He looked more like William Hartnell than the guy they got to do the, uh, the five doctors did. Yes. So. Yes. And of course I'm blanking on his name. <laughs> that being said, uh, we also have another rather major character that we, uh, meet here at the South pole. Uh, the captain who has been plucked out of, time right before his appointed time to die for, for some reason that we haven't figured out yet. Um, That's what we're told, but there was an error. <laughs> exactly. Uh, but there was an error in the timeline and he ends up with the two doctors at the South pole rather than back in your 1914 in December uh, during world war one. Um, what did you think of the character of the captain? And let's not spoil who he is until we get closer to that. I actually, I liked the character i felt an instant connection to that character just because of how he entered into the story he was just very relatable and you could you could tell that he really kind of didn't want to be in the position that he was in and did not want to have to make the choices that he was about to have to make uh, but he was willing to do what he had to do if he was pushed to do it and i i kind of felt like I was in a similar position myself, you know, in certain parts of my life and not to that drastic of a, of a position, but you, you understand <laughs> what I mean when I say, you know, where you have to make certain choices that you don't necessarily want to have to make. Mm -hmm. And so I've, I instantly connected with the character just because of that. And that helped me to, to find that character to be very relatable. Uh, yeah, no, his introduction was great. You know, as we see him there in the, you know, the, the bomb hole, the crater, yeah, the, the crater there. Um, bomb hole, yeah. Anyway. Um, but yeah, the, the crater there, as he's facing off against this German soldier, the, just the two of them, it just... <laughs> that interaction as he's, you know, talking through the fact that, you know, he doesn't want to have to do this. He, you know, the other guy may not want to do this, but you're, the likelihood of one of them dying is incredibly high, and right before one of them is about to pull the trigger and everything freezes. I thought it was, it was a really interesting way to start that, and I thought it was a really interesting... Um, character moment for him. Okay, now when this happened, did you feel like that time had stopped entirely? Like the whole of time had stopped? Or did you feel like that it had stopped in just those two instances? Um, I don't know. That's the aspect of time travel I don't really think about because it breaks, <laughs> makes one's brain hurt. I prefer to look at it from the opposite direction. Uh-huh. Uh, from the, the direction of testimony as they go through and they're like, so we're going to just jump in pluck someone out from the moment before they die mm -hmm. and take them away and get what we need. They would have had a very long period of time to do that with Clara. Mm, <laughs> yep. <laughs> oh, dear. <laughs> they would have taken the long way around. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Yes, true. Oh. <laughs> but oh. it appears that this, this entity called Testimony has been stealing something from the dead. Right. And they bring, they bring someone to the doctor in exchange for the captain, you know, because they need to put him back in his time so he can die at his appointed time. And of course they bring Bill out. Right. Which, you know, we knew she was going to be in the, the show, but were you happy to see her back? Well, I kind of almost felt like that this was a missed opportunity in a couple of different ways, because I felt like if Steven was going to have Bill come back, that instead of having the quote unquote testimony 
that we got with the glass figures and everything, I thought it would have been a really good opportunity to have had this be the incarnations of the the organization or the race that would have been the result of Heather's situation, the the water people and everything, you know, because the in that first episode of last series, you know, Heather was absorbed by that entity and became like that liquid entity with Heather's mind, right? Mm-hmm. And she was able to take on different shapes, different forms. And so I thought that this would have been a great opportunity because he was going to have Bill there anyway, instead of making this like the glass figures or whatever, to have had like all of these entities be the same thing that Heather was, you know, and have this kind of be a direct tie-in to that and say that she was just one of many who made up this, this organization or this race of beings that ultimately was the same thing as what we got, but just a different physical incarnation of that. Does that make sense? Uh, Yeah, but I don't think that would work because Heather is a very much an independent being character. And it's not like, why would she start going around collecting the memories of all the dead? I'm not saying that she would. I'm saying that she would have ended up returning to the rest of them that were like her. That's what I'm saying. But I don't think there are other people like her. I think she's an accident. Well, that, you know, that's the way it is now, but that's not the way that it could have been had they chosen to do it differently. That's what I'm getting at, you know, Uh, because Bill would have already been there with Heather and Bill would have just been naturally in that position already if she was still with Heather. And I just, I just felt like that that was just a way to tie everything in together rather than bringing in something completely new because it seemed like the, 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 the whole thing with Heather was just kind of underused, in my opinion. Well, I don't think it was something that needed to be used in general, um, especially here. I mean, I, I, what we got at the, in the finale, I think, with Heather was good. It was fine. I didn't, I didn't ever think we were going to see Heather again. And I honestly don't really think I need to see Heather again. I, so that having something new like this worked for me. If it was Heather, I would have said, well, this is kind of weird and convoluted. And while I know Doctor Who likes to do the interconnected thing and, you know, timeline thing and all that fun stuff, uh, I would have felt that that would have been a little too twisted and I don't know. Maybe. It would have been too much for me. But on the flip side of it, too, if they were going to do it the way that they did it here... Was there really even a need for Bill to come back? Because well, yes, absolutely. Because they could have just as they could have just as easily had uh, had Clara come back. No, the, in in the position that Bill was in in this in the story. But the Doctor wouldn't have remembered her. Mm. The Doctor wouldn't have remembered her. That's the point. You know, he would have thought, you know, you seem familiar, perhaps, but he wouldn't have remembered Clara. So they need Bill because Bill is, of course, the most recent companion. Bill is the one who's most, you know, raw in. The twelfth Doctor's heart, you know, the he's the one. She's the one that he lost most recently. So she still has the easiest access to his heart to get through to him. So you need Bill, and I wanted Bill, <laughs> and Stephen wanted Bill. So we got Bill, and I I think that's. Did she need to be there? Probably not, but. Stephen wanted her. I wanted her. We got her. It just didn't feel like that she did as much in this story as she's done in some of the other stories. And that's all I'm saying. Well, it's not her story anymore, though. This story is about Dr. One and Dr. Twelve. 
it is it is their story as they you know work through why they should regenerate, why they should continue on. We are at a, a, a crisis here, essentially. If the first Doctor decides he doesn't want to regenerate, none of this ever happens. Right. We get to the point, and none of this happens. Well, ultimately, you have the same thing that that the Twelfth Doctor was talking about before in a previous episode, where you once again have a bootstrap paradox. You know? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> because you're, you're in a position where the Twelfth Doctor has to convince the First Doctor to regenerate in order for the Twelfth Doctor to exist. But, but he doesn't do any of the convincing. <laughs> That's the thing. is I don't think he does... I don't think he's trying to convince him. They just are trying to solve this issue. And the Twelfth Doctor's actions yeah. convince the Doctor to do it. But Twelve isn't actually trying to change one's mind at all. Not actively. He's trying to convince one that you know they are the same person. But that's yeah. all he's doing. He's not going, you have to regenerate. You have to regenerate. He's not going to force that on him because then he's a hypocrite. Um, <laughs> so, Which is um, another paradox in itself. <laughs> I think we're using the word paradox a little too freely. I don't know. I, no, the, half of the doctor's existence at this point is probably a paradox. So. Well, anytime you get two of them together, it's a paradox. Paradox. <laughs> that's funny. Funny. I see what you did there. <laughs> Anyway, but 12 is, you know, wondering if he should just stop and, you know, this be the last of the doc, you know, the last doctor. Right. But then what happens next? What happens to the universe? And Bill is there to sort of remind him, hey, remember all the good things that can still go on. You know, that's why she's there because she can speak into who he is because she's the closest one to his heart because he's she's the last one he lost. He hasn't hardened himself to her loss yet. Right. He hasn't gotten over that yet. And so she has the access to to speak into him, which is why she's here and not Clara. But to a certain extent, she almost feels like an observer in this story. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Until the end, until closer to the end, but especially at first, she is kind of an observer, but we have this situation where now the doctors, uh, the captain and bill are running around trying to figure out, um, how to solve this problem to figure out who the testimony is, who the, the woman, the glass woman is, in order to find out how right. they can fix the situation. Um, and and they end up um, here, what is, where is this? Uh, Villengard. The factories on Villengard where uh, <laughs> we run across an old friend yeah, now, see, of the I, doctors. Personally, I like this. I thought that this was, was something that was well served in the story because it was a callback to the beginning of Peter Capaldi's run. And I felt like that mm-hmm. that kind of bookended this situation, you know, and I really liked the way that they did that. I know that maybe there are people out there that didn't feel like they needed that, but I felt like it was a nice little touch. I thought it was a nice little add in there. Is it needed? Probably not. Was it nice? Absolutely. I I like getting rusty back. <laughs> um, the the quote unquote good Dalek. Right. Who would who would promptly tell you he's not a good Dalek. Uh, because a good Dalek is one that kills and destroys without question. Um, he describes the Doctor as a good Dalek, which... Which has happened more than once. Is, <laughs> mm, yes. Although that is still yet to be determined, um, if the Doctor really is a good Dalek. But um, they he goes there to access um, the database, the Dalek database, 
because the database in the first Doctor's TARDIS is not complete enough to give him the information he needs on who this lady from testimony is. Let's see, I saw something um, else happen in this scenario, too, that, that I feel like actually helped to uh, kind of inform the first Doctor's decision as well. Uh, because okay. of the scene where he goes out on his own and he's investigating to find out what is really here because he saw the Daleks without their armor. And he said something mm-hmm. to the effect of that looks kind of familiar. And the 12th doctor basically said in a nutshell, yes, they should look familiar, but they've mutated a little bit over the years, you know? And yeah. Yeah. he didn't really want to just come out and tell the first doctor what they were dealing with in that scenario uh, because he didn't want to give him too much information about his future. But right. when he goes out and realizes what is actually there, he realizes that he didn't end up defeating the Daleks as finally as he thought he had. And so he understands that there's still a threat. And I think that that's one of the reasons why he ended up choosing to go on was because he realized that it was going to kind of be his responsibility to make sure that they didn't hurt anybody else. Maybe, but I think a large part of his mind was made up in the conversation that he had with Bill, Mm -hmm. where she comes out and talks to him and asks him, you know, I don't mind. I don't care what you're running from. What were you running to? To sort of remind him why he left Gallifrey and stole the TARDIS in the first place. Which is a kind of fitting conversation to have amongst the, the Daleks there that are skittering about, you know, (laughs) <laughs> right. Right. <laughs> and we finally get a really interesting explanation as to, you know, a, a rather vague explanation, but uh, an explanation nonetheless right. as to one of the reasons why the first doctor left. He wanted to know, you know, the whole struggle of good versus evil. Good logically shouldn't win because evil will do anything to win. Right. You know, essentially. But why? Why does good seem to prevail? Um and so he was trying to, in some part, see if there was some thing, force, something out there that did that, you know, that was part of that and, you know, could give reason as to why that would happen. Right. And if you think about it, that's kind of interesting because he started out this entire journey as more of an observer, as more of someone who was hands off, who just kind of watched to see what was going to happen. And then as things kept progressing, he had to get more and more and more involved in order to make a difference. And then he became the change. Right. And I think that that in itself is really, really nice kind of a tie in to, to what has happened in his history. You know, it kind of makes things kind of fit together like a little puzzle. Yeah, no, it really does. And it was really great. I thought it was a really great scene between the two of them as he sort of, you know, does that. And then she goes, well, what if it's a man, just a bloke, you know, going around the universe, making sure things, you know, go right. He says, right. Mm, that would be a nice fairy tale, my dear. She goes, yeah, it would. And, you know, looking at him with that knowing smile. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> you know, oh. um, <laughs> you know, I just happened to think about something. Hmm. The doctor. Yes. He defeated the Daleks at the beginning. He, he, saved everybody but would the Daleks have ever left Scarrow if the Doctor had never shown up there in the first place hmm eventually maybe maybe but, but he kind probably of makes you wonder you know 
<laughs> right? <laughs> I mean, the, the ambition of the Daleks is there in a way that I think um, eventually they would have, you know, headed for the stars. But he definitely uh, advanced those ideas, I think. Um, pushed those, oh. you know, delusions of grandeur. Um <laughs> Oh, so. it's just something that hit me just all of a sudden. I, I, I like to have those kind of thoughts come up, you know. Well, you know, <laughs> there's there's a couple of those types of questions you could ask when it comes to some of his reoccurring villains. But, um, you know, how <laughs> how much of his terrible interactions are kind of his fault in a roundabout way? Um, <laughs> <laughs> Inadvertently sometimes. <laughs> right, right. But oh. we don't have to go over that now. We, we find out that the testimony, the glass lady, the testimony lady, is, uh, you know, essentially a scientist, Helen Clay, who essentially is trying to record memories. Right. So the dead can, you know, can sort of live again in a sense. They can speak again. They, they, they have worth, you know, in a sense, she's trying to restore some sort of, of worth and dignity by storing their memories in these glass computer interfaces, you know, because then the interfaces can change to, to match the person and can live and act in, in a way like these people who have passed and pass on their memories. Which, if you think about it, it's kind of interesting considering that Missy was doing the same thing at one point. <laughs> Are you talking about with the Cybermen? Yes. <laughs> I don't think that's the same thing. She was collecting people to fill her cyber. Well, there there were there were different motivations uh, involved, but the the methodology was very similar. Let's put it that way. No, I think she was just stealing them after death, because you know that's more her style. Let's just go to the graveyards and take everybody. But the doctor, you know, finds out what what testimony really is: the testimony of the dead, in a quite literal sense. Yeah. And he's like, it's not an evil plan. I don't know what to do when it's not an evil plan. (laughs) (laughs) Which I thought was funny. There wasn't really a foe to fight. Well, I kind of felt like Tom Baker would have said that. Right? (laughs) (laughs) There's not a foe. There's not really a foe in this episode, which we haven't had something like that in a very, very, very long time. There's always some yeah, sort of antagonist. The battle was actually you know, the, the, inside the doctor. You know, mm-hmm. the, the doctor was in, at war with himself. He wasn't at war with someone else. And that's right. one of the things that makes this so unique. Mm-hmm. So, um, and of course, it's revealed that, yeah, Bill is one of these testimony avatars. You know, this is all mm-hmm. of her memories. You know, this is who she is in a sense. Um, so at some point... You know, because obviously testimony is from the far, far flung future. Um, so at some point, Puddle Bill died, you know, and, and this is who she is. This is the essence of Bill now. Uh, she's part of testimony. Um, and the doctor's, you know, deciding to feel betrayed by saying, see, you're, you're just, you're not really her. You're just a copy. You're just, you know, a glass in her face. She's like, but I'm her. I'm her memories. This is, this is Bill. I am Bill, you know. Right. What are we if not memories? So, um, which is an interesting argument. Well, yeah, but at the same time, because he knew that it wasn't really her, 
I think it kind of left him feeling a little bit empty and a little bit maybe lonely, you know, because he had to yeah. come to terms with the fact that she was gone, you know. And and I think that's kind of interesting, too, because if she was what Heather was, what would it have taken for her to die? You know, I mean, because ultimately was Heather even able to die? Oh, I don't know. I'm sure, you know, old age sets in and I mean, you can jump around time and space, but, you know, I'm sure you still get older. Well, <laughs> Well, I mean, I guess, I guess you think about it this way, that the face of Bo was supposed to be immortal and he ended up dying. Right. Uh, I guess everybody burns out or fades away at some point, you know. No one is really immortal. Except for maybe Lady Me. <laughs> we still don't know what right? happened to her. <laughs> <laughs> well, she was at the end of all things. We oh. did see that. Um <laughs> But did she end oh. at the end of all things, or did, is she just kind of floating out in space, you know, among the nothing now? She left at the end of all things and went back with Clara. Oh, that's true. She did. But but wouldn't <laughs> she end up there again at some point, you know, if she lived long enough? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. <laughs> anyway. It just, some of the some of the themes and stuff in this kind of feel a little dark, you know, and they, they're... They kind of have this kind of forebodingness to them, you know, um, and you kind of get the feeling that th the, the testimony may have their eye on the doctor. They may have uh, a an ultimate goal to try to capture the doctor's mind. I don't know. The two of the two of them refusing to, to die, re regenerate is what caused the time error in the first place the doctor deduces and so he's like well let us put the captain back since this is our fault you know let us put it right and you know glass bill acquiesces to to the request and the two of them head back to 1914 Ypres, uh there during world war one bring bring the captain back to his crater although they made a slight adjustment well 12 <laughs> made a slight adjustment. Fudged the hours just a few. Still the same day. <laughs> still the same place. Just fudged the hours a bit. So I put him back yeah. in. Time picks up again. And we get the Christmas armistice. Yeah. Of World War One. I'm not going to lie. This brought the feels big time. Oh. It The the document, the, the featurette said that it affected everybody. Everybody on set. This... David Bradley in particular almost lost it, you know? Um, yeah. It was really moving uh, to be there on set, apparently. Um, there wasn't very many dry eyes at the end of it. And for those who don't know, this is a real-life event. Christmas Day, 1914, foxholes in World War One, German forces, and uh, I believe it was British forces, um, due to someone singing, I believe had an armistice on Christmas Day to celebrate Christmas together. And they came together across the battlefield. They celebrated, they drank, they ate, they sang. And then they went back to their respective lines at the end of the day. And they went back to war the day after Christmas. It's a real-life event. And yeah. nothing like that has ever happened before or ever happened since. Yeah, This is where we find ourselves. It's a Christmas miracle. It really is. It really is. 
I think this is where the doctor, the 12th doctor first starts to realize, well, maybe, maybe I shouldn't. And he's not fully convinced, but he's like, you know, things like this. As they're putting the captain back in, and he's made his peace with dying, he asks, you know, the doctors, can you, can you just look in on my family? And the, uh, first doctor says, absolutely. You know, what's the name? Do you want to tell us the name, Paul? Lethbridge Stewart. <laughs> mm-hmm. Archibald Hamish Lethbridge Stewart. Grandfather to Brigadier Alistair Gordon Lethbridge Stewart. Yeah. Which, yeah. I'm not surprised. Getting to this point in the episode, I wasn't surprised. Um, and we even speculated, you know, a while back that, that, mm-hmm. that he could be related to the Brigadier. But especially watching his mannerisms seeing his gun <laughs> reminded me of the of the brigadier's gun you know mm-hmm. with the 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 strap and everything so I, I was not surprised i was very pleased and happy though that they did do that and that made my heart swell see here's the funny part about that scenario as we know anytime that the doctor encounters himself the only version of him that retains those memories is the latest version. Yeah. All of the previous versions to the latest version lose those memories. So the first doctor would have had no memory at all of the fact that he was supposed to be looking in on Lethbridge Stewart, but yet as the second doctor, he still ends up meeting the brigadier. Yeah. That's crazy. It's awesome. <laughs> That's it's crazy. Awesome. I I think it's wonderful. <laughs> now you can imagine that, you know, Archibald Hamish Lethbridge Stewart ended up dying on the battlefield, you know, the next few days, um, in order for time to mesh back up uh in a relatively cohesive fashion. Um Maybe. But it was nice to save him. It's nice to save him at this point. So, but. and it was kind of nice that he actually, even though he wasn't supposed to be able to see the doctor, he just got that final glimpse before the doctor left, where the doctor waved goodbye yeah. to him. You know, right? Yeah, I think that's kind of good. And that was something where where it was like a brief moment, uh, he a brief glimpse and a brief remembrance, and then it kind of faded. You could see that on on his face, like it all just kind of faded, like the the vision and the memory kind of just slipped mm-hmm. out of his mind, but. The first doctor turns to 12 and says, ah, so this is what it means to be the doctor of war. Mm-hmm. And uh, he shakes 12's hand and says, I think I'm ready to face it. Whatever you decide, I hope, you know, whatever you decide, good luck. Yeah. He heads back to his TARDIS to start this whole, this whole show off again. <laughs> and I, you know, this is something that I brought up before when we were talking about the possibilities of this they actually went back and showed the original footage of the first doctor regenerating into the second doctor. And that was something that I, that I had said before that I really wanted to see happen in this was to, to be able to just see that lead in to the power of the Daleks, you know, because it was just so, so fitting to, to kind of have that book in. Yeah. I really enjoyed that. And, you know, we, we can go all over the place with this, but I mean, if you think about some of the things that this story tied into or called back to, you know, the Mondasian Cybermen were in both the 10th planet and the Dr. Falls. 
And mm -hmm. both of the encounter with those led to both of these doctors being in the position that they were in. And then yes. in this story, the first doctor finds the shell pieces of the Daleks and he's examining them. And then as soon as he regenerates, what happens? He ends up going into the very next storyline where he has to deal with the Daleks again as the second doctor and has to do it all over again, examining those pieces of armor from the Daleks. You know, I think that's mm -hmm. kind of a nice little, you know, shout out to the tie-ins to this story. I think that, that, that Stephen Moffat did that stuff completely intentionally to call out to that stuff. Oh yeah. And, and I really like those tie-ins. I really love it when everything just kind of feels like it fits together, like a puzzle. How did you feel about this scenario with the, the testimony? Did you feel like the testimony had an ulterior motive from the beginning to kind of learn about the doctor and, and find out whether the doctor was worthy enough to become one of their kind uh, at some point in the future? Or do you think that this was just a random thing that happened to them that just put them in this scenario? I think it was random. They were in the middle of a routine pickup in a sense with Brigadier's grandpa. And then the two doctors happened to meet up together and cause this time error, this disturbance that mm -hmm. throws everything off. You know, it was their fault that the captain ended up where he was at the South Pole. The reason I ask that is because to me, it didn't feel random. To me, it felt like it was something where they were putting the doctor through a test. But with everything else going on in the story, I don't think it could be anything but random. And here's my reasoning. Because it wasn't an evil plot, it's not something that, you know, the, the motive for testimony is to simply collect the memories of those about to die. Um, it's not something to... You know, there's not something, there's not a, a, a larger purpose behind it. With everything else, you know, the, the fact that it's not an evil plot and it's just sort of a, you know, a character piece about these two doctors refu mm -hmm. refusing to move on. I don't, I don't think it is anything more than a chance encounter. And you might be completely correct in that. Uh, but I, because that's kind of how things went during some of the first doctor stories. It was things just sort of, you happen to run into things. You happen to run into people. You happen to do this, you know, and I, and I think there was a lot of storytelling here that called back to the first doctor era. Right. Well, just, just humor me for just a second though. And let, let me just kind of throw this out there. And, and I'm, you might be completely right, but this is the reason why I felt this way. Okay. Because mm -hmm. we had gotten to the point where the doctor had basically decided that he was going to die. He was not going to regenerate. Mm -hmm. And I saw the same time frozen scenario with Lethbridge Stewart as I did with the doctor and normally they would obviously freeze time at the moment of someone's death so they could take their their memories or whatever and then let their physical body die mm -hmm. well when the doctor had made up his mind not to regenerate and, and that he was going to die they could have frozen time in his scenario to have found out whether or not they wanted to retrieve his memories or not. Because if you'll remember, they kept talking about how he was the doctor of war, the doctor of war, the doctor of war. Mm -hmm. And the implication was that him being the doctor of war, that he was a violent, destructive person, in which case they might not want to have him become part of their group. 
that's that's where I went with that in my mind. And like I said, I may be completely off. I may be completely just overthinking the situation. But that's the reason it kind of felt that way to me, because it felt like that that the first doctor decision, yes, it was important. It had to be made. But the, the 12th doctor was the one that they were watching to see whether or not they wanted to take him or not. And when he made the choice not to die, they didn't have to make that choice. Does that make sense? Um. I, I I can see that, but I don't think that's the case. Because um, in my mind, I'm thinking they wanted to, you know, take his memories, and then his physical body would have ended up on Trenzalore whenever he died. I I don't know. I don't think Trenzalore counts anymore at this point. I think he's kind of you know surpassed Trenzalore. <laughs> <laughs> Maybe, but I mean, everybody's got to have a grave somewhere, right? Uh, does the doctor really have to have a grave? I don't know. <laughs> I think the doctor's grave is the TARDIS. Floating somewhere through time and space. Oh, the um, was on anyway, <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't. I don't know. There's so much about Trenzalore that it doesn't make sense to me anymore. But anyway, I'm not going to get into that. It never made sense to me in the first place. But anyway, about this here, I, I don't. I don't think that's the case. They called him the Doctor of War. I think as their own definition of him because they have so many of other people's memories that he shows up in. So they have kind of a history in a sense of the doctor, you know, and there's all these names for him throughout history that they've collected from people who have now passed. Mm -hmm. And so they have come up with their own title for him, the doctor of war. And we get kind of a definition as to what that means at the end here, what the first doctor says, but I I don't think they called him the doctor of war on Gallifrey after the time war was over as well. Yeah. So Um, that, that could have been where they, they got that, that title then. Uh, But I, I don't think, I don't think the normal collection method works with Time Lords because they are... I don't know. Uh, ...outside of time, in a sense. Because, you know, time froze, but the Doctors didn't. Right. I don't I don't think that, that they're bound by the same rules as, you know, normal people are when it comes to this process. So I'm not even sure if Time Lords are a thing in the Halls of the Dead there. You know, I'm... I don't maybe know. Maybe they are. But, you know, I, since they kind of exist out of time, I don't think a normal collection method is possible when it comes to the Doctor or any other Time Lord. But it almost feels like that this technology and stuff would have to be based at least at least loosely on Time Lord technology. Possibly. Yeah. But it is the, but it is the far, far, far flung future. And so right. time travel technology, you know, has had, you know, starts and stutters, you know, throughout the Doctor Who, you know, stories, we've, we've seen other people, you know, right. dabble in time travel technology right. before. So it, it's also conceivable that they... The Daleks. Yeah. <laughs> so it's also conceivable <laughs> that someone else could have de- developed it too. I, I don't know. It, it, I, I don't think... Nothing about this scenario is normal for anybody. Yeah. So I, I, I don't think there's a malevolent or evaluatory thing. But since the Doctors are the one who threw off their calculations when they were putting the captain back in place they had the captain and so they were like well we need him back we need to put him back in order to you know maintain time so who's someone that he cares for in his timeline right now ah bill so that's why they they bring her memories up and bring her to the doctor because it's a it's a computer program now it's it's not run by people anymore it's a computer system and you know the system you know has its mission its mandate you know to find people at the verge of dying collect the memories, put them back. And, you know, 
if something goes wrong, well, we have to figure out some way to fix that, to, you know, mm-hmm. that sort of thing. Well, that's just the reason I felt that way, you know, when I was watching it. So, yeah. you know, it could, yeah. it, could, it could go either way. It could, but I'm, I don't feel that way. I don't think there's necessarily any evaluatory aspect of this. I think it's because it is a computer system. If the doctor was about to die, they would have just taken his memories and said, okay, there you go. Have fun. Thank you for all of that information. We're going to have to open up another planet to store it all, but thanks. <laughs> oh, what did you think about the 12th Doctor steering the first Doctor's TARDIS uh, without any effort at all? And the first Doctor's looking at him like, how did you do that? <laughs> <laughs> it was great. Because that's, that's one of the things that, that we learned with the first Doctor is he can kind of get it to take off and go, but... <laughs> Where he's going, he has no idea, you know. <laughs> of course, we find out so, later on that the TARDIS decides where it wants to go. <laughs> in large measure. Yeah. <laughs> so. Oh. But yes, I, I think the, the last thing we need to really talk about, though, is this, this last scene before the regeneration. Mm-hmm. We have this scene with Bill and the Doctor, um, and we bring Nardle in, which is great, you know. Uh, seeing... Seeing Nardle again brought warm feelings to my heart, um, to quote Yoda. Uh, there's our Star Wars reference. But uh, I I love seeing Nardle. We found out he had glass nipples and invisible hair. Um, and he likes cuddles. Um, <laughs> cuddle. Oh, wow. Um, when one is dying, one thinks their day can't get any worse. But there's you. <laughs> so, you know, oh well. The doctor confronts Bill one more time about the fact that she's just a collection of memories. She's not really Bill, and she's, you know, okay, fine. I'll show you how important memories are. And we get the scene that has made me blubber every time I've seen it, which surprised me. Uh, and that is, we see Clara, and mm-hmm. he gets his memories back about Clara, which honestly you should know. have happened. I mean. It should have happened yes. because the doctor needs to be whole, especially going into a new incarnation. Yeah. No, it's this scene when I saw it in the theater uh, caught me off guard. I mean, I I figured we would see Clara in some way, but the way it happened caught me off guard and I started to tear up. I rewatched this today, you know, in preparation for this, and it still put a lump in my throat. It's and I, <laughs> and I don't want to bring too much baggage into this. But I think part of it is, you know, while I'm so happy for the Doctor to get his memories back of Clara and all those adventures that they had together, um, you know, have those complete now in his mind, it always makes me go back to Donna. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And I'm like, but what about Donna? Why yeah. can't we give her her memories back and find some way to make her live? it's the cruelest thing that we've ever done to a companion is take their memories and make them you know have them not able to remember the fact that they traveled with the doctor and that she was so important when now she's just back as a temp and you know (laughs) anyway not trying not to be too bitter at Russell T Davies but be honest it messed the doctor up enough that he stayed alone for a while so you know. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> but we see Clara. And if we see Clara, you know, that means she's actually finally gone back and faced the Raven and she's right. dead now. So, right. so well, we can kind of have that resolved too. Yeah, I sense. mean, ultimately that ends up having to happen at some point in the future. But, uh, right. you know, 
we'll probably never get that story. No, so. no, but we we do realize now that you know because you know the, the glass form transforms from Bill to Clara in order to bring those memories back, and since there it's able to do that, that means that they have her memories, which mm-hmm. means she's passed. Yeah. You know, she's finally died and gone back and faced the Raven, which brings a bit of closure to me in that regard. So that helps. And I didn't think I was going to miss Clara that much. You know, I, because, you know, you and I, we, we were candid about it. We had, a, you know, a couple issues with, with her as she, you know, got to the end of her run. And let's be honest, that was more of the writing than it was the portrayal of the character by the actress. I mean, it wasn't right. her. It wasn't her fault. It was how she was written. Right. The way that they kept writing her in and stuff. And it, and so I was a little surprised with how much, how happy I was to see mm-hmm. her again, you know? So yeah, that was a really nice moment. I'll tell you, and, and I know we're jumping all over the place and it's, it's fine. We do that. Um, the music in this episode. Oh my, the music in this was fantastic because we got yeah. music that went across the eras all the way from Eccleston uh-huh. through Tennant, through Smith, all the way through every single series up to this point, we got all of that music in this episode and I was jumping out and, of my seat. I was so happy about that. And, and there were moments that sounded like they could have come from a symphonic rendition of the classic era. Yeah. There were moments that sounded like they were straight lifted straight from classic who and given to an orchestra rather than, you know, the, uh, radiophonic symphony. Right. That they have there. The, so, um, it was so good and it makes me sad because I think I saw Murray Gold is moving on and not doing Doctor Who again next year. And that might be one of the reasons why we got so much great music in this was because it was his last chance to show off. Yeah. I'm sure that's part of it. But yeah, so we're we're getting a new composer. Yeah. With uh, the new season. We're literally getting a new everything with this next series right. that's coming up. Everything is going to be different. So, yeah. yeah. But no, what, what it was, I'm sitting there with my wife, we're watching this together. And as soon as they brought up the doctor of war, as soon as they brought that up, you hear the bad wolf theme. And, and I was like, (gasps) you know, (laughs) because, because that was the music that made that Eccleston era was that, that was the theme that covered that entire series over and over and over again and it it really truly brought that to the forefront as to say this is post time war doctor that they're talking about yeah and yeah i just i thought that was just so fantastic but a bunch yeah <laughs> <laughs> but yeah no it was great it was great hearing all the familiar nods of course we got clara's theme when she showed up yes um <laughs> which was really nice. They, they started it like a half a second before you saw her, you know, mm-hmm. she says hello and, you know, off camera and her music starts and then they cut to her. Yeah. Um, so that was really nice. Um, but yeah, no, the music in here was great. Uh, Murray Gold really outdid himself. And I'm just frustrated that we haven't really been getting uh, soundtracks since series eight, uh, because yeah. I would love to buy the soundtrack for this episode. Yeah. Anyway, um, <laughs> that's that's another issue. But we finally get to the point where the doctor makes a decision. 
he has to make his decision about what yeah. he's going to do. And the TARDIS kind of talks him into it. Yeah, and that was cool, too, because those sound effects and stuff that we've been hearing all this time that we thought was just random, it turns out is actually the TARDIS speaking to him. Right. <laughs> right. Either that or he's just going crazy and the sounds are, you know, he's reacting to the sounds whether or not they mean anything or not, which is entirely possible, too. But I, I like to think, you know, that TARDIS is actually talking to him. Well, it, it brought me back to this, the story of the doctor's wife, you know. Um. Right. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> um, that being said, he decides, you know, well, one more couldn't hurt. It couldn't kill anyone. Except, except me. me. Yeah. <laughs> oh, thanks. Thanks, Peter. I just, as if you weren't, you know, twisting that knife in my heart far enough. He decides he's going to, you know, let the next doctor out. But first, he has to say a few things or to get it right. Right. <laughs> he, he gives one last 12th 12, 12th doctor speech as he runs around saying things profound and throwing in things like never eat pears. <laughs> it was a great speech, you know, and I like he kind of delivered it to the TARDIS console, which makes me wonder if we're going to see a recording of that next season. That would be kind of cool, actually. Yeah. As the doctor, you know, the new doctor starts to, you know, remember of who course. she was and of course, there's something else we got to talk about too that might not make that possible. So, <laughs> and what what would that be, Paul? We'll get there. We'll get there. <laughs> the regeneration happens, and it's violent, as per usual. You know, things start sparking and exploding. Uh, we get the reveal, and the one word that Jodie Whittaker says as the thirteenth Doctor, which is brilliant. Mm-hmm. Um, and it does sound like she's keeping her northern accent. Many people is, will be happy about that. Which is nice. Yes. Um, I've, I've heard some speculation that there's some people that think that maybe she might actually kind of follow a similar persona to what Eccleston followed in his characterization of the Doctor as well. Uh, which, um, I don't know if that'll happen or not. I don't know. But I know that it would be I don't know. kind From... of a, a cross between whimsical and, and, and uh, energetic, you know. I always viewed um, viewed Eccleston as a doctor on the verge of severe depression. You know, he's someone who thought he had done a terrible, terrible thing. And he's on the verge, you know, wandering around trying to find something to avoid falling into depression. Mm-hmm. You know, which is why when he saves them all um, in The Empty Child, you know, it, it has that great of an effect on him. And why he develops such a close connection to Rose because she kind of gave him purpose. But that's also the turning Um, point in that series too, is after that episode uh, where he, you know, has the big smile and everybody lives. He is more lighthearted after that than he was before that. You see what I'm saying? It's like suddenly a weight has been lifted off of him because he felt like that he now has a purpose again. Yeah. But I, I don't know. I get the idea that Jodie Whittaker is going to be a little more lighthearted. I don't know. Um, because her costume is kind of whimsical and, you know, and that sort of thing. And just the grin that she gets on her face. Oh, yeah. When she says brilliant. I, I get the idea that she's going to be more lighthearted, a little more fun loving than we got with Peter Capaldi, which, you know, makes sense because you don't want to go from, you know, crotchety old man to, you know, annoyed lady, you know, <laughs> so, um, you know, annoyed, serious person, you know, that, I, I don't right, think that's right. gonna, you know, 
would would fly as well. So I, th- I think she's going to be a bit more whimsical, a little more lighthearted, a little more fun loving. Um, that's just my impression, but I could be totally wrong because we right. saw her for all of, you know, 30 seconds. But, um, and most of that was trying not to fall out of the TARDIS as it emptied yeah. everything. But, uh, Buff doctor, but out. that's what I'm talking about too. Uh, when I say, I don't know if that will be possible for us to see a recording of the 12th in the next series, because it literally, we saw a chunk come out of the TARDIS console in that scene. Yeah. There was all sorts of stuff going on. I mean, and, and that's something else. Okay. Did it almost seem like to you that the TARDIS was trying to eject her out of itself? Yeah. yeah. It, it Yeah. Did. Because it's like it turned on its side, it opened its doors, and it was shaking itself to try to shake her loose. And I'm thinking... Oh my gosh, why is that happening? You know, it was almost like, okay, I don't know you anymore. Get out, you know? Right, right, right. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> it it kind of so- felt that way. Yeah. Um, and she's holding on to the console. And it's, you know, blowing up. and She's holding on to the console and an entire chunk comes out of the console. And, and she goes flying out the doors. That was crazy. Yeah, yeah. That was more damage so she's than we saw falling. with Matt Smith. Oh, I don't know. There was a lot of damage with Matt Smith. Things were just <laughs> blowing up and sparking everywhere. And I mean, yeah, I don't know. It just, it, there was fire and brimstone and those weird shaped columns were crashing <laughs> down all around him. I don't know. There was quite a lot of damage when Matt Smith came on this, the scene, but he kind of, you know, clumsily wandered his way into explosions anyways. <laughs> oh. So maybe it's just Matt Smith. <laughs> but... but, but <laughs> That being oh, said, wow. though, yeah, no, it, the TARDIS literally seemed to be trying to eject Jodie yeah. Whittaker as the Doctor out, you know, like, uh-uh, bleh, you know, yeah. to, I you mean, know like spitting out a bad date or something, you know. <laughs> do you think it's Here's because, do you think it's because of the, the fact that the Doctor is now a woman? Uh, because the TARDIS... Well, who's going to call the TARDIS sexy? Well, the TARDIS is a female, <laughs> and let's be honest, exactly. the TARDIS is pretty much heterosexual so uh which if you can be heterosexual is a machine um (laughs) and so she's not seeing her man anymore you know and that's it's i don't know i mean (laughs) it's possible but i honestly you know the, the whole thing ends with 13 being ejected from the tardis falling from the sky towards Earth, and it cuts, you know, yeah. it cuts to credits, and a to-be-continued as she's, you know, in the upper atmosphere, you know. Which, this is the second to-be-continued in a row. Right. <laughs> Meaning that this is now a four-parter. <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> oh. but, but what happens is, you know, the TARDIS dematerializes as we see it belching flames and explosions out the front door. And, you know, she's watching that happen as it leaves her as she is falling out of the sky. I don't know. Uh, And that's how it stops. I don't know. My guess is, you know, it'll rematerialize underneath her um, and catch her before she hits. But, um, you know, know, this is really, but I don't know. know. One of those things, this is really one of those crazy things that you know, will never happen. But what if, what if a former incarnation of the doctor, say like the third doctor 
shows up just in the nick of time to save her. <laughs> you you just want Sean Pertwee to, to come back as the third doctor. Is that wrong? <laughs> Not necessarily. <laughs> but I, I don't think I don't think so because I think uh, she has to learn how to stand on her own two feet as the new doctor first. Um, yeah, I'm just I'm just making stuff up. I mean, no, to right, see I, I know to see that happen immediately after a gender swap of the character to be saved by a man would kind of feel like it defeats the purpose in the first place, you know? Right, right. So, Even if the man is your previous self, um, right? <laughs> several times removed. <laughs> but but it would be kind of fun to see uh, him show up at some point playing his dad's role. I'm yes. just going to say that. Yes, um, it would. But we've been saying that ever okay. since we started this podcast, so. <laughs> Did you pick up on all of the lines that that Stephen Moffat wrote into this episode that told the fact, told the, the, the viewers about the fact that he was having so much difficulty letting go of this character? Like what? Well, for one thing, at the regeneration, when he says, Doctor, I let you go. You know, uh, that yeah. was like that was like his telling the doctor goodbye, you know. But for another thing, it's like when he's talking to Bill and she specifically says the hardest thing about knowing you is letting you go. The hardest thing mm -hmm. is to let the doctor go. And I'm sitting there yeah. and I'm thinking Stephen Moffat is saying that from his own point of view, he is telling the viewers, this is the hardest thing for me to do because he literally got into writing for TV because he wanted to one day write for Doctor Who. That was the entire reason he became a writer for television in the first place was because yeah. he wanted to write for Doctor Who from the time he was a child. And now he has to let it go after being involved in this for like 10 or 11 years, maybe 12 years. And that's got to be the hardest thing for him to do, you know? Right. But if he doesn't make the choice to do it, 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 it could be something that he regrets in the long run, you know, because he can right. only take it for, he can only take the character so far. So, right. You know, everything has its time. Everything has its end. And that's right. something that's, you know, been said by the doctor before. So, um, yeah. uh, but you know, it, it's one of those things where, you know, he's, you know, while I'm sure he would love to stay on for another five, seven, eight, twelve seasons, you know, um, it, it's time for him to move on. Um, and, you know, he recognizes that and um, the show will miss Stephen Moffat and we will just have to wait and see what Chris Chibnall brings to the table uh, to see, right. you know, how much we're going to miss Stephen Moffat. Right. And that's not to say that Stephen Moffat will never, ever write an episode ever in the future, but I guarantee you it won't be for a long time. Yeah. Yeah. So. He'll take a couple of years off at least. Yeah. So maybe by the time we get the 14th Doctor, he might be willing to come back and write an episode or two. Right. Well, I mean, he'll probably have a bunch of fresh new ideas at some point in the future, you know, because he won't be involved in the show for so long, you know. Right. Right. So. Okay. Um, anything else you wanted to bring up? Because I think... <laughs> I well, think there's, a, uh... there's a few other things that I could bring up, but I think that those would probably be more suited to save 
for an upcoming episode. Mm, yes. An upcoming episode, perhaps, as we uh, look back on Peter Capaldi's tenure as the 12th Doctor. That perhaps? sounds like a good idea to me. Yeah. So um, <laughs> we're going to do that. We haven't decided, you know, if it's going to be the next episode or the episode after, but we're going to do that. We're going to do a retrospective, look back on Peter Capaldi's run as the 12th Doctor, right. who's my favorite of the modern Doctors. So I, you know, we're, we're going to do that. We're definitely going to do a retrospective, look back on the ups and downs of his, you know, time as the Doctor, some of the greatest moments, some of the right. through lines and everything. Um, I'm just going to throw this out a there. Bit. It would probably make the most sense to go ahead and finish our last third Doctor Master episode and then go ahead and talk about our, our recap of Peter Capaldi's run as the Doctor because that would give us a brief pause before we go into the fourth Doctor Master episodes. Mm, yes, and it would also uh, give us uh, a brief time to collect our breath um, and re you know regroup ourselves after losing uh, Peter Capaldi. So it gives a little bit more time to come to grips with that. And so we're not just <laughs> blubbering the entire episode. Like, Oh my gosh, he's gone. Um, Cause that's, that's not a good episode. Um, <laughs> kind of, kind of like the brief pause that we had between the death of Han Solo and the new Han Solo movie. Oh boy. Um, <laughs> <laughs> Paul, uh, I think before we wrap this up, we, we still need to rate uh, hey. twice upon a time. How many testimonies are you going to give twice upon a time? Hmm. Well, let's see. Honestly, I'm going to give it a nine. Um, you know, because I think that it was absolutely fantastic. You know, um, I don't think that there, I mean, that one of the biggest criticisms I probably had is I wish it was a little longer, just to be perfectly honest. <laughs> I, I, I kind of wish that it was feature length, you know, um, uh, but you know, we got what we got, and and uh, the fact that it left me wanting more is a is a testament to how good it was. So I'm I'm going to give it a nine. I I I I I'm going to give it a ten, just because I love it so much. <laughs> There's so much of this episode worked for me. Um, the the first and twelfth Doctor interactions. Just David Bradley as the first Doctor in general was brilliant. Um, oh yes, getting to say goodbye to Peter Capaldi in the way that we did worked so well for me. Um, the, the story of, you know, the Brigadier's grandfather, uh, weaving that into it. Um, Bill worked for me. Uh, so I, I it's not like, it's not going to be like, uh, I still probably like some ep other episodes more than I like this one, but there's so much that works for me in this episode that I, I especially this close to it. I can't just sit back and criticize it. So I'm going to give it a 10. <laughs> I, I love, I love Twice Upon a Time, and I knew I was going to love it watching the trailers. So, um, yeah, no, it, it's well, it's a good episode. Any time, really and this is just my personal opinion. Any time that we get a chance to revisit classic Who in the new era, any time we get an opportunity to tie something in Doctor Who into an actual historical event that kind of makes it feel more impactful is a good thing for me. Yeah. No, it was good. It was good stuff. All right. Um, before we babble on anymore, we should probably start wrapping up this episode. So, folks, if you want to get in on the conversation about Twice Upon a Time, please feel free to do that on our social media. That's facebook.com slash talkingtimelords. We can also find our Facebook group, 
um, connected to our page. So be sure to join that. Uh, you can also tweet us at, at Talking Time Lord or email us at TalkingTimeLords at gmail.com. The website, if you forget any of those links, um, <laughs> is TalkingTimeLords.com. And you can also find all of our episodes there, including the great artwork that Paul puts together for the show. <laughs> I can call it great because I can't do any of that stuff. So um, you don't get you don't get a say uh, because you're making it all the time. So you don't get a say oh. how good it is. Um, but anything else, Paul, before we uh, close down this episode? Yes, we do have our Patreon. Don't forget about our Patreon. Um and we will have uh, uh, more information about that in the future. Some things have not been put in place yet. So just keep that in mind if you go and take a look at the Patreon page. Yeah. So, um, and things may fluctuate a little bit um, as we figure out what we want to do and how we're going to take this. So yeah. just be aware. But that being said, I think it's time to regenerate this episode into a new one. So let's head on out. <laughs> uh, that'll wrap up this episode of Talking Time Lords. This has been episode number 83, Testimony. For Paul, I'm Jason. And remember, until next time, may you hope far-flung hopes and dream brilliant dreams. <laughs> Thanks, everyone. <laughs>